Amen. Well, we're going to continue to study Romans. We've got this week and next week will be our last uh, sermon in this series we've been in on Romans. Um, I know we can't cover the whole book in just seven weeks, but we've tried. So uh, made a good effort, and hopefully you've given, given some things to chew on and some think about so that you can go and study it with a little more confidence on your own in the future. Um, as we've studied Romans over the past few weeks, I'm thinking that one of Paul's main purposes in writing this letter is found in Romans 15:7. And I've already read this scripture for you, but I'm going to read it again. I think this is really at the heart of what Romans is about. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. I think this is one of Paul's main purposes is he wanted these Christians in Rome to welcome one another, to accept one another. As we've discussed, it seems likely that in the early church in Rome, there were a lot of different groups there. There were people who were struggling to kind of get along with each other and find common ground. And Paul his heart was about creating these multi-ethnic, diverse congregations that would come together um, because they realized that the gospel has broken down all these walls and hierarchies that we've br- built up in this world and that he wanted them to come together and, and worship God together as one. Paul wanted particularly the Jewish and the Gentile Christians to not just get along with each other, but to welcome each other, to accept each other, to embrace one another. To learn to live together in love and unity despite uh, their significant differences that they had in backgrounds and ethnicity and beliefs and values. You know, people have different ways of looking at Romans. You go and pick up a book on Romans, one book, and you pick up another. They may have a totally different take on this book. But one view that I've found compelling um, related to Romans is that Paul is not really specifically addressing individual Christians in all times and places. But Paul is speaking more about groups of Christians. I'm wondering if the main questions in in Romans is not so much how an individual gets saved, but he's really asking questions about who makes up the church. Is there a place for Gentile Christians, or do they need to become Jews first? How do these vastly different people relate to each other and accept one another and live life together in community? And my belief is that all of the theology in Romans 1 through 11 is meant to reinforce the idea that salvation truly is for all, that it is for everyone, both the Jews and the Gentiles. So our text for today is Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. I could spend probably weeks, months, even years just on these verses, Um, but I'm not going to do that. I am not going to cover it all. I'm going to talk about one particular part of it, but I want to read these verses for you. You've probably heard some of this before, but you'll see as I read it, it's a little bit complicated to make sense of some of his arguments. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness, so that he is righteous and he justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No, rather through the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, if it was possible to add up the time and the sweat and the energy and the pages that have been spent debating and studying these verses, I think we would be stunned and shocked by the amount of energy that's been put into just these verses. I heard a guy say recently that these verses contain the most important paragraph ever written in any material of all time. That's a strong argument. I don't know. That's a strong statement to make. Um, if you want to talk more about these verses, then maybe at the talkback session uh, on August 6th, you can come to that and talk more about it. But for today, I want to focus on one important phrase. And it's Romans 3, part, part of 22 and part of verse 23. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This verse, uh, Romans 3, 23, uh, was part of that uh, Romans road to salvation that I talked to y'all about a few weeks ago. This was one of the verses that I used when I tried to lead that young man to Christ at Ichthus. And I interpreted this verse like this. You know, Paul was addressing all of humanity, arguing that every single individual in the world has sinned. Then he later says that the wages of sin are death, or the punishment for sin is death. And so, if every single person has sinned and the punishment is death, everybody deserves to die. However, because of Christ's mercy, all people can be saved from death, and spend eternity in heaven. And that is a very common reading of this verse. And what I said, there's, there's truth in that. But I'm not sure that Paul is actually talking about that in particular in these verses. I recently encountered another way of thinking of this verse that I find really compelling, and I want to share it with you. Um, and there are other ways to think about this stuff, but I, I just want to offer you up an idea. I've heard a lot of people argue recently that when you see the word all in Romans, you should consider maybe reading instead of the word all, reading the word both instead. So when we read a text like this one in particular that I think really helps us understand this, we would say, for there is no distinction since both have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this makes a lot of sense when we understand the context that Paul is addressing these divisions that were happening between this largely Jewish Christian group and this largely Gentile Christian group. They were judging each other 
And they were struggling to welcome one another as siblings in Christ. And so essentially, Paul might be saying here that both this Jewish group and this Gentile group have sinned. Both of them have. Let me explain. In Romans chapter 1, Paul spends quite a few verses in Romans 1 talking about these kind of stereotypical sins of Gentiles. Idolatry, sexual immorality, violence, deceit, the list goes on. These, this list of sins was very typical. of When Jews would describe the sins of Gentiles, they would often mention a lot of these particular sins. You can find this in other Jewish literature, actually. These were common criticisms of the sins of the Gentiles. Now remember, Phoebe was probably the one reading this letter aloud in these house churches. There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in these house churches. I want you to imagine Phoebe reading this section of the letter, talking about all these sins of the Gentiles. She's reading it aloud. I imagine some of the Jews in the room were probably nodding their heads. They're like, amen, amen, sister. Those sinful Gentiles, yes, they are awful. They've been treating us like garbage. They're not good. We don't like them. And they're probably amening. Yes, those Gentiles are sinners. You are right. Paul's on our side. He sees it the way we do. I imagine some of the Gentiles in the room maybe were feeling uncomfortable as they started to hear Phoebe read about these stereotypical sins of the Gentiles. But then we move to Romans 2, and Paul then turns his attention to the Jewish Christians. And he then spends many verses addressing the sins of Jewish Christians. And he basically argues that some of the Jewish Christians who were judging the Gentiles for their sin are no better And that they were, in fact, doing the very things that they were complaining about the others. And so imagine Phoebe getting to chapter 2 and the Jewish Christians who were amening uh, Paul for the condemnation of the Gentiles quickly started feeling uncomfortable themselves. And perhaps the Gentiles started getting excited that Paul was going after the people who were judging them. And they're like, amen, Paul, we hear you. Those Jewish Christians, those are, are sinners, Paul's on our side, actually. And then we come to Romans 3, where Paul then argues that there is no distinction because both of you have sinned, Jews and Gentiles. Both of you fall short of the glory of God. I was talking to Dustin about this this week, and and we were wondering, maybe Phoebe scans the room, pointing at every one of them in the room and making eye contact with every individual in the room And saying, both of you, every single one of y'all have sinned. Y'all are judging each other. Y'all are looking down on the other. All of y'all need Jesus. All of y'all have fallen short of the glory of God. Do you see what Paul is doing in these chapters? I'm wondering if Paul was doing this as a way, as a strategy to try to take them off guard and try to teach them a lesson that they needed to learn. Remember, one of Paul's main goals was to convince Jewish and Gentile Christians to welcome one another. One of the main issues between these two groups was that they were judging one another and thinking that they were better than the other. So it makes sense that Paul would begin his letter showing that both groups have problems and both groups have sinned. You know, if you're struggling to get along with someone or if you're finding yourself being extra judgmental of others, Paul's advice might just be, to stop looking at your neighbor's faults and start focusing on your own. 
because you need Jesus just as much as your enemy, for both of you have sinned. You know, Paul was a follower of Jesus, and I believe Paul received this wisdom straight from his master, Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus taught this very thing to the people. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest teachings in all of history, Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, I don't think this passage really needs to be explained because it's pretty obvious, right, what Jesus is saying. If you're human, you probably understand this teaching really well because we are really good at pointing out the faults of others, pointing our finger. We're really good at, being, at judging one another, and we're really bad at dealing with our own stuff, aren't we? We're very good at pointing our finger at others and not looking at ourselves. I love this quote by this guy named Dale Allison. He says, Human beings unhappily possess an inbred proclivity to mix ignorance of themselves with arrogance towards others. I love it. I love unhappily possess. This doesn't work very well for us, but it's so true that we often can be so ignorant of ourselves and our own issues, and at the same time, we can be extremely arrogant towards others. Y'all agree that we have this problem in humanity? (laughs) We point our fingers at others, we call them out, we label them, we push them away while failing to look in the mirror and see our own issues. And Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount these transforming initiatives. He gives an action that you can take to deal with your judgmental spirit. He calls us to dig deep and deal with our own issues before we try dealing with anybody else's. Among uh, my pastor colleagues in Kentucky, over the last few years, they've tried to emphasize and and teach us about emotional intelligence. Have y'all heard of this? Um, Many pastors are very gifted people. Pastors can be very talented and smart, be engaging, good leaders. However, often our problem is that we aren't very self-aware that we don't work on our own problems, and we have little emotional health. Often pastors can do a lot of harm to their churches because they haven't dealt with their own issues. And I think Jesus is calling us to dig deep, to become self-aware, and deal with our own stuff. So he says to remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly enough to see the speck in your brother's eye and be able to maybe help deal with that. You know, it's an absurd image to have a plank coming out of your eye. But Jesus is, is pushing the absurd there to make us think that obviously if you have a plank coming out of your eye, you're not going to be able to see it all. And you're certainly not going to be able to help your sibling with what they might need. And here's the cool thing, and I think really the, the liberating or the freeing thing that will happen when you do that hard work of self-examination. And it's a lifelong journey. But what I've found is that as you learn more about your own 
self, when you learn about your own issues, your own weakness, your own pain and trauma, the difficulties you've faced, that you'll often become a more gracious and loving and accepting person of other people. Because when you dig deep and you see and unearth a lot of that unpleasant stuff and that ugliness that exists within us, you'll have more grace for others and you'll be less judgmental of them. Because when we realize how broken we are, how much we need grace in our lives, we'll be much more willing and ready to show up and offer that grace for other people. Perhaps we're judgmental and we're harsh and excluding because we don't fully understand ourselves and our need for grace and love. I think the church should be the least judgmental place on the planet, right? I think that that should be the case because every time we come together here at Embrace, we have a a literal confession that we read every week, that we come together every week and affirm that we are sinners in need of grace. We come together at the communion table every week acknowledging with our hands open that we all need Jesus in our lives. We need Jesus. Church should be a place where everybody is welcome. This is what I believe Paul is doing in Romans 1 through 3. He's really trying to help these groups understand their sinfulness and that they need Jesus in their lives. They need this grace and this unconditional love and transforming love from God. And after we've done kind of that hard work of self-examination and we're honest with ourselves, then we may be able to help our brother or sister out with what maybe they're dealing with. Jesus says that once the log is removed from our eye, then we'll be able to see our sibling more clearly. And this seeing, if we can see them more clearly, it'll help us uh, to be more gracious and kind and loving to them. Because you'll recognize that they need that same kind of love and kindness that you need. That that they need it as well. I think part of that seeing is what our culture calls empathy. Right? It's being able to look and try to place yourself in somebody else's position. And often we don't have the eyes to see that very well. Because we just haven't done that work um, to have that vision. Thomas Long uh, points out that groups like AA get this right. I think church often should look probably more like an AA meeting than it does, to be honest. Because when you show up to a meeting, there's honesty, there's acceptance of everybody that comes through the room. Everybody gets an opportunity to share, and you suspend judgment, and you just accept that person for where they're at. He says that those who are fighting addiction are helped most, not by people who scold and judge, but by those who have admitted their own powerlessness. Those who confess that the springs of moral refreshment only come from God. And my experience is that people who've been through recovery are the most gracious and kind and accepting people that I know. And it's often because they've done that work to acknowledge and see what they need in their lives and they've been honest with themselves and they're able to see others with more kindness and more grace. And here's what I've been thinking over the past few years and and it's been freeing for me and I hope that it can be freeing for you all as well. I've said this a few times at our church, but I often like to repeat the things I think are important, and I think this is important, that I don't need to worry about everybody else's sin, that Jesus taught this, I believe Paul teaches this, that I need to worry about my own sin, and I need to worry more about loving my neighbors. Jesus told us, Jesus Jesus made a lot of things, I think, really clear. 
But often we like to complicate the things that Jesus made pretty plain and pretty simple. Jesus was trying to describe all the laws in the Old Testament. He was trying to help people understand how they can understand all the complicated laws and everything that we read about in, in the Hebrew Bible. And he says that all the law and the prophets, basically the entire Old Testament can be summed up by two things. And you all know what they are. We've talked about them many times. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love people. And Brennan Manning, I, was, I, re- I revisited uh, Brennan Manning's book this week, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Have you ever read this book? Life-changing for many people. But Brennan Manning argues that there is no danger that we will over-exaggerate this call to love. He says the danger is that we will seek to moderate that command and continue to find excuses not to love fully. And I think he's right. Jesus made it incredibly radical when he said all the commands, the entire Old Testament can be summed up in the ethic of love. We're not in danger of exaggerating that. We only try to put stipulations on that. That's what we do. And so I think we need to lean into that, and we need to continue to press more and more into what that might mean for us in our lives and in our community, what it means to love radically. You know, when I became the pastor of this church nine years ago, I decided that, that I'm going to love people uh, more than I, than I judge them. And, and it's a very freeing thing when you can get to that point and say, I'm just going to love people. And, and I'm going to let, I'm going to try to come alongside folks and love them in their journey. But um, I decided that if I'm going to err on one side, then I want to err on the side of loving people too much. If I'm going to get it wrong, I'd rather over-exaggerate that part of the command and because Jesus specifically says to be very careful about judging, right? Because we get that wrong over and over and over again. But we, also, we more often fail to love the way that God has called us to love, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I, I've talked to many people. Rob and I were just talking about this recently. But this idea that, like, when I, I get to the end of it all, you know, I've passed away and transitioned to this uh, new place, you know, to be with Jesus forever. And I come to... I don't know if Peter's at the gate, like, holding a, you know, blocking it or whatever, looking at the list. I don't know if all that happens, but I'm envisioning if I get there. I can't imagine Jesus looking at it and being like, John, you just love people too much, you know. You should have been harsher. You should have judged more harshly. You should have pushed people away a little bit more, you know. Why didn't you come down harder on those people, you know. I just can't imagine that happening. But I do know that Jesus, in a lot of his talk of, like, judgment, and there's a lot of his talk about what the sifting that might happen one day. It's all confusing. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But Jesus does talk about how um, the things that we might be measured by at that point is, did we accept one another? Did we love the stranger? Did we reach out to the outcast? Did we visit those who were suffering? Did we welcome people into our lives? And those are the things I want to think about. Those are the things I want to press into. And I don't worry about that too much either because I know the grace and love of God is really big. And I know that God is with me on this journey. But I want to focus on becoming more of a loving person. And, and I have so much work to do. I'm, I fail at it on a regular basis. Um, but there's grace for that journey. So I encourage you all just to, you know, that, that line, all have sinned and all fall short, it just really sticks out to me that that's a humbling thing I think we all need to accept. That every one of us have our issues. Every one of us falls short of that standard that, of holiness that God is calling us to. And that um, when we are willing to accept that about ourselves, then I think that will set us free to be able to love more fully. Because we recognize that we're all, we're all in this journey together, 
And we all have room to grow. We're all on this journey of becoming shaped and molded into the likeness of Jesus. And we need a lot more empathy and love and compassion than we need that harsh stuff that churches can often uh, veer towards at times. And so I encourage you all to, to be willing to welcome your weakness. Trust in Jesus' grace and his unconditional love. I encourage you all to embrace others and love always. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.